Welcome back to That's Ancient History, season four. Again, I can't quite believe that we're already here at season four, but I'm super excited to share with you today's interview. I recently had the absolute pleasure of chatting with Amy Hines over Skype and recording it for all of you guys as well. Amy is currently doing some incredible things in the world of classical scholarship. She most recently graduated from her MA at Leicester University where she studied the classical Mediterranean and she's working on beginning her PhD research into applying intersectional feminism to Greek mythology which is an absolutely fascinating project and one that I cannot wait to see the results from myself. She has written on race in the classical world as well as trans narratives in classical reception and you can actually read her article all about the romanticization of rape narratives in Greek mythology retellings on Eidolon, which if you haven't checked out yet in general is full of incredible, important and very contemporary research. And I was lucky enough to have her here on the podcast to chat all about intersectionality within the classics discipline itself. It was such an enlightening conversation that I'm so pleased I'm able to share it with all of you as well. And with that being said, let's cut to the reason you're all here. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's so nice to have you on. Yes, it's lovely to be here. <laughs> uh, it was nice to have an opportunity to talk about um, some of the, the topics that I know that you're really passionate about. Um, and that I've seen you talk a lot about online, whether it be an Eidolon or your own research. Um, these are all things that I care about a lot. And it's <laughs> one of the things I found um, when I read your article for Eidolon um, about like feminist retellings and intersectional feminism and like um, classical receptions was that you managed to articulate a lot of thoughts that I felt like I'd been having and not sure how to express them, particularly with the whole erasure of rape narratives in um retellings and that was so fascinating to read somebody who'd kind of done that for me <laughs> yeah I um I have to thank the editors a lot there for helping me to articulate what I actually meant um but I had been thinking about it quite a lot and as I say in the piece I came to it from the point of view of reading Nikita Gill's poem mm. um which is a really valid way of looking at things but just didn't certainly did not reflect what I knew about the mythology and um, really what struck me was as, as I say in the piece what struck me was her kind of rebuttal of everybody who was saying actually no this is not how it goes mm. in the myth um, and she was she felt very strongly about that and when I spoke to her it came across very clearly how strongly she felt but having having looked into it and having spoken particularly to Nikita, it, it did make me realise how much of the onus is on us as classicists to get the actual meaning across. Um, I, I certainly couldn't blame her at all for her reading of the myth, given the research that she had done. Um, and she had done everything that I, as a classicist, could have expected her as a non-classicist to have mm. done. Um, so yeah there's there's a lot to be said for us doing the responsible work yeah I thought that was amazing I I I, I love that you kind of turned that back on like academics within the classical world itself who kind of perhaps we can't we, how, how can you expect uh, pop culture to do a subject justice if for a long time we've been ignoring these things um, I, I think like Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey is a really great example of that, how, you know, everyone's been reading these traditional translations of the Odyssey that paint the women and Helen in very specific ways. And she's come along and undermined all of that. But 
um, that that's kind of what's been presented to the public for such a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot to be said for, for nuance. I mean, certainly I know some good reception that isn't necessarily feminist and isn't necessarily that good at getting across what I would like to see, but it's still a good reception. Mm. Um, and I think it's just it's just knowing what it's us knowing as classicists what we need to get across for content creators and authors and artists to be able to use. Um, but also kind of stepping back sometimes when that's not what they're trying to do, I guess. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if the, if the ancient Greeks and Romans could retell these myths how they want, I guess um, you can't you can't stop anybody in the 21st century doing that either. Um, but I think um, I, I, what always interests me whenever I talk to anybody about antiquity and I think talking about the different levels of how people receive classics, whether they're just reading it to retell it or reading it to write a PhD on it, is everyone accesses classics for the first time in a different way. And I'd love to hear about where your journey started. Um, mine is quite a convoluted one, really. Um, I was sort of introduced to Greek mythology, like a lot of people are through books when I was a kid. Um, and I always had quite a lively interest in it, but really my passion was art. Um, mm. So I really went in hard for art all the way through school. Um, and lots of the artists that I love deal with Greek mythology quite a lot. So mm. pre-Raphaelite is my favourite art movement and they draw heavily from yeah. not just Greek mythology, but folklore as well. Mm. Um, and it was that that, really really made me kind of look into the myths um and it was only when I decided oh, when I got to university decided that I didn't want to be an artist that I kind of regrouped and was like what else do I like actually I really like mythology mm. uh, I went into um my my degree my BA was in uh classical archaeology and ancient mm. history and I went into it thinking I can probably spend the whole three years talking about the Iliad if I want to <laughs> Um, which I didn't do and I found lots of other things to enjoy but I did come back to the Iliad um, so I think it, it it's a, yeah, a bit of a roundabout journey to, to classics really. I like that I like the idea that um, like a lot of that was through art and like a visual medium as opposed to necessarily um, the way some people access it maybe through studying Latin or Greek in school it just kind of shows that there's kind of a way in for everybody um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I did study Latin at school um, and it, I, I was good at Latin. I enjoyed Latin, uh, but art was always a thing that I liked more. So it was kind of for me, a, it was always a second option in the back of my head. But I never thought of doing classics. If I had done if I had have done anything other than art, it would have been straight Latin. Mm. Um, I don't think that at the time I thought you could really do anything with classics apart from sort of like stand in the dusty corner of the museum and point <laughs> out the old pots to people yeah um so yeah I think it was it was quite a convoluted journey but also in, in a nice way it's led me to these things that I research now because one of the things that I sort of had to question at some point about both art and classics through looking at the pre-Raphaelites was the the whiteness of it the sort of the very pointed one-dimensional view of the classics of Greece of mythology um and that kind of led me away from art a little bit mm. for a while so uh, it's 
it was quite a nice way to come into it because it's definitely informed my viewpoint a lot now. So talking about the different ways that people access classics or maybe uh, find themselves finding connections in, in different areas um, of classics, um, whether it be through like language, literature, art. Um, one of the first times like I came across your work was in your article on Eidolon. And Eidolon is uh, quite an incredible thing because it's doing quite... I guess, new things in terms of like classical scholarship. It's not um, your old school journal. It's publishing really like radical and interesting pieces. Um, and I wondered what your thoughts were on sort of the way that new forms of media can help broaden classics horizons. I think they're absolutely vital, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think that the... there will always be a place for academic scholarship as there should be um, because it's really important that we're all not just kind of throwing our two penithing and that um, things are peer-reviewed and things are properly researched but that's not to say it doesn't happen with things like Eidolon which is Mm. why it's such a great resource because those things while they're not peer-reviewed they are well they go through a very rigorous um, editing process so, you know, it is, the, it is the case that they're looked at. And I think they are a really good, they're a really good place for conversation and debate, whereas mm. academic scholarship is not necessarily because it takes the process of, um, the process of publishing takes so long. Once it's out there, the process of publishing your rebuttal would take so long <laughs> that it's almost not a conversation. Um, whereas Eidolon is so much it's so much quicker and because it is so intimately connected to social media it is a place where we can all gather around and talk about these issues um in a way which is usually civil um (laughs) but it it is a place where everybody not just crucially not just academics can access it and can get involved it's a i mean certainly um some of the the feedback that i had back about my idolon piece some of the negative feedback has made me think about the ways that I will um, think and talk about mythology in the future, Mm. thinking about it more as something that is, in some cases, a lived religion for some people. Um, Mm. So I think that's the sort of feedback that I probably would have never been able to access myself had I gone down a traditional route with that piece. Um, Having said that, I think it's quite important that those sorts of pieces are more common in academic scholarship Mm. um one of the things that i would really really like to do with my phd is push the um sort of analysis and critique of i'm doing air quotes here like (laughs) low sort of um what's the word i'm looking for like popular media and sort of like low literature rather than high literature this sort of idea that we can only look at things that are canon and classics and prize winning is is really quite damaging in in a way because it completely lets other things that are really more engaged with by the everyday person skate under the radar um so it means that there's lots of things for me what's what's relevant for me is there's lots of things that engage with mythology lots of perceptions that engage with mythology which are sort of this kind of popular media which just completely skate under the eyes of academics because it's not seen as being literature or it's Mm. not seen as being 
um, canonical. It's never going to win any prizes because it's just not that genre. And I think we really, really need to be taking it seriously as something that is is capable of being critiqued academically. Yeah, so it's almost like a 21st century form of scholarship because so much still goes into the thought process of those writing, say, like a retelling um, where where they have analysed the myth and, and they're experimenting with the sort of like liminal places within that myth that maybe we haven't talked about before. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, there's, there's comics, for example. Yeah. And I think even... even not talking about new ones so there's like marvel comics are absolutely mm. full of greek mythology um and there is work that is that's been done on it but it's not really it doesn't happen in those places that talk about the high literature mm. and the high cultural things um you know we've got lots of people talking about Anne carson which is wonderful <laughs> but Anne carson's not the only person who's looking at at Sappho for example no. so I think you know it's, it's really important for us to not only have places like Eidolon which are very accessible and are really encouraging of people who are not classicists not only to get involved but also to actually to write for them and mm. have their say um, but it's important for us as well as academics to engage with the stuff that we perhaps have ignored traditionally in the past. Yeah, I could not agree more. And actually, you made me think there. It's interesting how um, traditional scholarship will, can can treat ancient like forms of media that perhaps were a little bit more lowbrow when they were written with such reverence, but ignore um, modern like art forms as if they're less important. Well, the big question, I guess, is where do you think some of the largest kind of gaps are in traditional scholarship at the moment? Definitely uh, talking about lowbrow forms of media is a big one for me, um, mostly because I think that is often the place where lots of interesting things happen. And sometimes what we think of as lowbrow media intersects with things like um, media that is not the norm or media that is by marginalized identities mm-hmm. um and i think that that is a, a gateway into really looking at some some things that we definitely ignore at the moment have you had much experience with um sort of like modern uh, either forms of scholarship or just like stuff that's intended for uh entertainment value that has done interesting things with antiquity or mythology um, that that have a lot of merit. Yeah. So um, the funny enough, I I had to do a second watch of uh, for Troy Fall of a City on <laughs> BBC because when I tried the first time, I was just like, oh my god, this is dreadful. <laughs> um, but actually, when I tried, I sat down and I said, I'm going to watch it as research. So that's <laughs> how I made it through it. But even things like that do some really interesting things. So I mean, I love the film Troy, um, despite the fact that in every way it's like a bonfire um (laughs) but the tv show i think is really interesting that it shows a lot of it shows a lot of development in the way that people who are clearly not classicists are looking at the ancient world Mm. so um for me one really interesting part of that which made me think 
about how I think about the Iliad is the way that they treated Paris and Helen. So I didn't really like that when Paris gets to Sparta, Helen sort of just falls with a little bit of a push, falls in love with him and <laughs> happily goes back to um, Troy. But what I did like is that once, so in the series, once um, Paris is, once Paris does the judgment and hands the apple over to Aphrodite and Aphrodite tells him that he's destined to have the most beautiful woman in the world, it's quite, it's made very clear that Paris is from that moment on preoccupied with this idea that he is owed Helen. And when he finally gets to Sparta, mm. his attitude is, you belong to me because I've been told that. Um, and I think there are much more interesting things they could have done from there, but it was really, it was really good to see them use that idea of Paris's kind of feeling of entitlement when he mm. goes in um which is not something that I can kind of recall seeing anywhere because usually it's very much presented that Paris goes to Sparta they both fall in love with each other everything is fine except Menelaus obviously um <laughs> and they just happily go back to Troy together mm. and I, I really really like that it made it made the point that even though Helen in the series does love Paris she hasn't really got any choice because he's already decided that she belongs to him. Um, so I think it was a really, really nice kind of moment that was it. it I didn't expect it to be in there. And I think yeah. it's a really nice thing that clearly somebody has thought of how to present that. Um, so, yeah, I thought, I thought that was really good. I love that. I, lo I love talking to other people about like modern receptions of myths because even if I think I've seen something or read something and considered it interesting you always get a new perspective when you talk about them with other people and it, yes. it, it proves their value if nothing else it starts a conversation which is wonderful as much as <laughs> Troy the original film is well not probably the best source of um, reality when it comes to ancient material. Uh, spoiler alert, I suppose. <laughs> Menelaus dies in the film and then per Paris and Helen run away together. I always thought that was an interesting decision on the part of the writers. Yeah, I think, I mean, while I, as, a, as I've said, Troy, the film, is very problematic in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, I think there's something really interesting to be said there about taking a myth or a part of a myth and just taking it out of its setting um mm. so one of the best classical receptions that I've seen in a really long time is Home Fire by Camilla mm. Shamsi yes um, and that absolutely does not work in the context of the whole Oedipus myth so it's, it's based on Antigone yeah and it doesn't work in the context of the Oedipus myth because Shamsi plays with the um who the different characters are and who each of her characters match up with in the Antigone myth. Mm -hmm. um, and because of how she sort of sets everything out, it, it cannot be resituated within the Oedipus myth. She couldn't write a sequel, which, um, or even a prequel, which built that world back into the Oedipus myth. And in the same way, the film Troy cannot be situated in the world of the Aeneid because, mm. as you just said, Paris and Helen run away together at the end. Yeah, and off into the sunset. <laughs> who knows what's happened to Aeneas? <laughs> um, but, you know, even, even the Odyssey can't take place in the world of Troy, the film, because Menelaus is dead. 
So yeah. there's some there's some quite interesting things I think that happen when the creators decide to just run with the story as as they want to, mm. and that can be really really good, particularly in um, versions like Home Fire, which take them out of the ancient setting. Yeah. Um, and it can be very. I think it can be very freeing from the, this idea again of canon and what is highbrow, mm. um, it because it completely um, takes it out of any any kind of framework that people are expected to stick to when talking about these myths. Um, so I think Home Fire for me is a very good example of how you can almost ignore the myth and still do a very, very good job of doing a retelling and a very responsible job, which mm. doesn't sort of perpetuate the harmful ideologies which come from trying to translate the ancient world directly into the modern world. Mm, that's true, actually. So something I've thought a lot um, in my sort of classics journey, sort of coming from a pretty ordinary working class background in Scotland is... Um, do you think that classics has a problem with its image? <laughs> uh, does it become a little bit inaccessible because of who are often perceived as the kind of gatekeepers or the representatives of classics in the mainstream media? Yes. <laughs> um, I think that we can all agree that um, Boris Johnson, <laughs> Boris Johnson in general, is just like a terrible ambassador of classics <laughs> for anybody who like yourself I'm from a working class background and I think if I had seen Boris Johnson practicing classics the way that he is at the moment when I was younger I would certainly have not gone into classics mm. um I think that I mean there's a, a much wider conversation to be had here which we clearly don't have time to have <laughs> um but I think certainly um, probably the more so than I can remember classics from the point of view of the sort of the outside world mm. <laughs> so outside classics and outside academia ap would appear to be really really um inaccessible at the moment I mean the the on the plus side I think there's a lot of people doing a lot of really really good work about accessibility in classics um yeah. and I mean if if you're a person who's on social media and you're looking for it there is a lot of there are a lot of groups and a lot of people who are very much saying come in we're open everybody mm. is everybody can get involved um so I think there's, there's sort of two sides to it on the in the very mainstream media yes it appears very very inaccessible and even sort of our own personalities who are in the media I don't necessarily think help that so um I mean Mary Beard is a great advocate for classics. Does she make classics appear accessible? I don't think she does. Mm. Um, but then again, there is a, then a wider question to be had about um, how is she supposed to do anything more than she's doing mm. on on the telly? Um, so it's a difficult thing to answer, but I think certainly most of the younger classicists that I have met and spoken to are very very keen and showing that classics is for everybody and I think that the more that 
the idea of it being inaccessible through figures like Boris Johnson ramps up with the um, media representations. So do we who are mm. sort of like, no, actually anyone can get involved. We also <laughs> ramp up our activity to say, actually, no, this is not classics. Please don't think this is classics. <laughs> so I think, it, yes, in the mainstream media is definitely presenting classics as a, a very inaccessible um discipline and also one which is not that nice mm. but the good news is that classicists of all levels are sort of firefighting that at, at every turn yes. so you know <laughs> it's sort of a two-way street I guess um I can't I can't say that the mainstream media have done us any favors but at least we're we're mostly of <laughs> most of us trying to Make it come, better, so. come join us on Twitter maybe and uh, yes, <laughs> see yeah. that there's more different people out there uh, I was actually going to ask if you had any thoughts on ways in which sort of uh, current scholars whether they be in the study stages or the uh, doctorate stages if there's anything that we can do within the discipline to make it more inclusive and support more marginalized scholars um, I think the important thing is is listening, to be perfectly honest. The biggest, biggest thing is listening. Um, and I say that because it sounds like a really small thing, but it's, it's a discipline which at this moment in time is not very diverse. Mm. And that is not because marginalised people or diverse um, identities don't want to get involved. It's mm. because they're it's a sort of self-perpetuating thing in that mm. it's not a very diverse environment. So therefore people who don't look like their faces fit decide not to do it. Um, mm. And I think that there is a lot to be said in just being, being aware. So I think mm. certainly I'm, I am quite thick skinned and also very lucky to have not really had any trouble throughout both my degrees so I did my undergraduate degree distance learning didn't mm -hmm. have to worry about about anything I didn't have to meet anybody if I didn't mm. want to and on one level I'm very lucky that my name doesn't give away my ethnicity in any way shape or form um so if you have never met me or seen me and you've just seen my name written down you just uh, if you saw that I was a classicist you would probably just assume that mm -hmm. I was a white classicist um yes. and I think that when I got to master's I was a little bit surprised because it obviously as I say it wasn't a very diverse environment and I didn't have anything overt happen to me but there are lots of times that I look back on and they there are lots of microaggressions mm. and I think that that does drive people out of the discipline certainly mm. um and so I think the most important thing is for people to listen and be aware of be aware of the situation and in particular, be ready to change, be ready to change your beliefs, be ready to change your ideas and be ready to apologise if you mm. make any mistakes. I think that yeah. is probably the biggest one, to be honest. Um, but other than that, I th I'm not sure that I do have that many suggestions. I mean, I'm very much a person who's got lots of, I've got lots of criticisms and no <laughs> answers. Um, I think but, it starts at the criticism stage, though, doesn't it? We can't it, find yeah. answers until. <laughs> no, I think this is a thing. I think we're very much still at the um, we're still at the place where we're identifying the problems, and mm. the answers will come once we have identified what the problems really are. 
And that's a big part of it as well, because one of the misconceptions I think about, so certainly for me, one of the things that people have said to me about that are misconceptions about classics is that, um, for example, non-white people don't want to do classics because mm. their um, their families don't want them to go into it or because there's no money in it or because um, it's just not like interesting to them. It's not that at all. It's mm. it's very much more likely for most people that they have gone into the building or gone on an open day and everybody around them is white and they kind of go, mm, I'm probably going to be the only non-white person here and that might make me feel uncomfortable. Um, So I think that there's there's a lot of misconceptions and because of that, we're still ironing out exactly what the problems are. Um, So I think the answers will come when we've actually finally agreed on what the problems are. And by which I mean, I think when people who are still resisting what the problems Mm. are have realized what the problems are. Um, Because, you know, we, we know what they are, but it's getting people to understand that at least there's there's lots of people who are doing really good work to um sort of ease that when it comes I think one of the things I always do in these episodes I don't know um if you're familiar is ask for a book recommendation from guests now you've already touched on some book recommendations everyone should read Home Fire and I completely concur but if there was something you could sort of recommend to listeners, whether it be like non-fiction, fiction, to go away and read after they've like listened to our conversation, uh, what what would it be? <laughs> um, I would say the collection of short stories called um, Exo Orpheus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's fifty new myths. It's it's sort of subtitled, and it's based on lots of different traditions from around the world so there are quite a lot of uh, Greek receptions in there Greek mythology receptions but there's also some folklore ones there's mm. um, a few sort of Native American ones and there's some some very interesting takes on the different the different mythologies and it's I think because it's under the banner of Orpheus it's really really interesting to think about all the different myths sort of being equal in a way the Mm. idea of world mythology it very much takes away the sort of superiority of greek and roman mythology and puts it back on a level with other myths and also folklore which is a really important one as well so i found that really really interesting and um there are some very very interesting takes on myths that we're really struggling with the kind of responsible retelling of at the moment like the Persephone myth um so yeah that's that would be my recommendation very very interesting read oh I'm really glad you said that because I've got it on my bookcase and I still haven't read it (laughs) so that is an excellent reminder to me if nobody else (laughs) well thank you so much I think um there's a lot of food for thought in this conversation and uh, it's been really nice to have you on to talk about it all a little bit more in detail well thank you for having me it's been very it's been lovely (laughs) no problem at all and I would obviously encourage everybody listening to go and check out Amy's social I will link everything in the show notes um, and you can keep up with everything uh Amy will be doing in the future which is exciting things from the sounds of it lots of exciting research topics on the table so thanks again for joining me thank you so much